This podcast is brought to you by DMX. Made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. If you're new to our podcast, this is a podcast that focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. We are recording this on Friday, April 28th. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're calling it Chairs on Chairs. We're going to turn our podcast over to the leaders of two successful top grossing law firms and have them interview each other about the business of law. Kim Coopersmith is the chair of Aiken Gump. The firm was founded in 1945 and has more than 900 attorneys working in 20 offices worldwide. In 2016, their gross revenue was 980 million, which ranked 29th among law firms in the United States. Steve Immelt is the chief executive officer of Hogan Lovells. The firm's US roots date back to 1904. They have more than 2,500 lawyers and more than 40 offices worldwide. Hogan Lovells had the eighth highest gross revenue among law firms in the U.S. in 2016 with $1.9 billion. Both numbers are according to the American Lawyers 2017 rankings released just yesterday. Steve and Kim interviewed each other on April 18th, and we also recorded a video of their discussion, which you can see on biglawbusiness.com. Here are Steve Immel of Hogan Lovells and Kim Coopersmith of Aiken Gump. Kim, uh, great to be here with you today. Same. Let's talk a little bit about uh, that place where we both spend a lot of our time, uh, Washington, D.C., a.k.a. the swamp. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just curious as to what you all are seeing uh, with the new administration and uh, in particular some of the initiatives that seem to be going on. Uh, Aiken has always had one of the you know, uh, leading uh, policy practices in the country, if not globally, and I'm just curious as to how 2017 has been going so far in Washington. Yes, so um, I guess I start with, as you know, we live in interesting times, so um, it has been quite um, a transition for, I think, the whole country to absorb. In the legal sector, um, I think it's been creating opportunities, um, some expected and some of which I think as um, President Trump's initiatives have started to um, become clearer are, are creating a whole variety of paths for us and, and I assume for you. So when you walk into our office on the 10th floor, there are these two statues of a donkey and an elephant. And I guess I've been really glad that that's how we have built the firm in the last two decades to accommodate uh, bipartisanship, accommodate different views on a whole range of topics. And I think that served us well. So. Um, some of the obvious places where we have seen a direct impact from the new administration is clients very focused on trade issues, on tax, 
obviously the health care issues were kind of the dominant force in, in the beginning of, uh, of the administration. And we felt like we were well positioned to address those needs. In general, I think what we both have found in running large law firms is the change is actually something that is an opportunity accelerator at law firms. And we certainly are facing quite a bit of change. And Hogan? Yeah, uh, uh, very similar. I have lots of activity in the in the tax policy area. Uh, a lot of interest there. A lot of activity in in trade, as you mentioned, and kind of across the board. Even uh, as there is talk about rolling back regulations and shutting things down, it's opened up a lot of new questions for clients, and we're definitely feeling a level of activity that we did not see last year. It's not unusual in an election year to have some softening of activity in D.C., and it's it's uh, definitely interesting. Um, you know, obviously, the travel ban uh, got everybody's attention. Uh, was Aiken involved in, in that in some fashion? We, we were indeed. So the weekend that that um, unfolded, our pro bono partner organized um, efforts in Dulles and in uh, JFK, and we had a pretty overwhelming response to um, our associates and partners interested in meeting the needs and challenges. Right. We have a long-standing um, commitment to this, including in the prior administration with um, representing women and children who are in detention centers. So th this was kind of part of our fabric already, but this, this I think, did rally people to think about um, what we can do in the legal sector. And, um, you know, I think it, it was a, an a strong show of support throughout the, the large law firm community that I thought was um, an impressive show. Those first few weeks were a little bit unusual, I will say that, um, and I was very impressed at just the spontaneous reaction to to the developments that weekend, and then we uh, had the opportunity to represent the state of Hawaii and its uh, oh, right. ongoing challenges to the uh, travel ban one and travel ban two, and uh, that has definitely attracted a lot of uh, interest within the firm and outside the firm. You know, one of the things that's been interesting to me, uh, and uh, I don't think this is uh, unique to us, but um, the, uh, particularly among some of the younger lawyers, there's more of a sense, what's the firm's position on these things? And we, we have found ourselves having to navigate that whole set of issues. Uh, we don't have a foreign policy. Uh, you know, we don't, we, what we do is we represent clients, and it's been an interesting uh, challenge at times to walk that line carefully and, uh, and be clear that we stand for the rule of law, we stand for upholding people's rights, and at the same time, we're not out there to take a political position on issues, even though uh, people are interested in, in, in those questions. Right, and we have absolutely you know, the same um, stake in this, which is we're a law firm. There are unique skills that we can bring to bear to make sure that there is representation for those who are not represented. The rule of law is sacrosanct. Um, but it, it is a challenge because we have a firm with a wide range of views on, on issues, and I think we've done a good job of finding kind of the common core values of what the legal community can do um, at at challenging times like this. And, and I think it's actually been well received that the firm has 
been as committed, but also thoughtful in what it is that we um, choose to undertake in this respect. Right. Now you can't unring the bell, so you do have to be right. focused on what you're, what you're actually putting out there. And in the world of social media, that can sometimes be challenging. No question about it. But you are hearing from, you know, our associates are, are very interested in knowing um, what the firm's views are and where they can add value. Um, I have the, the unique added perspective of having a daughter who's a fifth year associate at another okay. large law firm. Um, and so um, hearing her perspective and her firm's perspective on what, what it is that um, we can do to, to ensure some of the, th the values that we most care about uh, has been a good added perspective. Right. Should we turn to uh, mo moving across yeah, to to we? a whole uh, a whole other range of, of uh, interesting times that we're living in? So, Brexit. Um, I remember the day of the vote, and I remember a variety of assurances that I received from my partners that just no way, this is all not to worry, Kim. This is all just going to stay the way it is. And uh, woke up to some startling news. Um, should have taken some bets, I guess. But here we are um, with a new day dawning and with more interesting news today. So you have an, a very significant presence in London. What is Brexit meaning to you so far, and where do you see it going forward? Well, it's something we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, it, it obviously caught us by surprise, as it did everybody. Um, I was actually in Perth when the election happened, and I went to bed with everybody saying that Remain had won and woke up uh, to a new world. Um, and I, obviously, the first efforts in, in 2016 were around trying to understand what this could mean and uh, lots of speculation and wheel spinning. But what we've seen now are clients are beginning to now put into motion plans. Um, they don't necessarily have the luxury of waiting to see exactly how the exit occurs. Um, and, and we have a very active financial institutions practice in London and have seen those clients begin to actively explore what the options are. Um, it's, it's, I think it's still uh, in your crystal ball, uh, impossible to say how this is going to work out over the long run. Um, all the economists seem to think it's going to be a bad thing for the United Kingdom, and it's, it's hard to argue with that. Um, I, I will say that our, our lawyers on the continent see this as a great opportunity. And if you are in Frankfurt or Paris or Amsterdam, there's a lot of talk about what this will mean in a positive way in terms of those practices. Uh, I, I think that the United Kingdom and London will continue to be you know, significant players in Europe, even if it's not within the context of being an EU member. And the, the change is going to come pretty slowly. Uh, we're glad that we're there. We're glad that we're there in a big way. But uh, it is, uh, I, I think that the, I've always understood, we've always understood uh, that the regulatory risks for businesses were something that needed to be managed. The political risks that have emerged in the last year um, have, I think, knocked people back and made us all understand that, that there's a whole third leg to the stool of, of politics that can have a big impact on our businesses, not just the economy, not just government regulation. Right, no question about it. So we, we too, um, I think everyone invested in trying to 
be prepared for this, but it still was unexpected, no question about it. Um, we fielded a, a huge number of inquiries, many involving just kind of the nuts and bolts at first. But now I think, like you, we're seeing kind of more long-term planning and interest in, okay, this is a reality, and what does it actually mean for us and for our business? Um, our client base in London is probably less susceptible to this wreaking havoc on them, but it doesn't mean that the issues aren't very real. Um, you know, we've, we've engaged in a higher level of expertise um, in London on trade, for example, because we think that there's going to be a whole bunch of issues and renegotiations where it will matter and our clients will have interests and views on what direction some of these initiatives take. Um, what happens in terms of um, London as a legal center, I still think that it is going to play a very, very significant role um, for, for, for our tenure running law firms and beyond. So I, I think the initial wave of kind of shock has settled into something that is more about how do we manage this most effectively for our business, recognizing some things are going to change, but the change is going to be gradual and um, I think less abrupt than it felt in those kind of last days of June or beginning of July. I think that all seems right. And uh, my only caveat is if uh, Le Pen yeah. is elected in France, that's, then we need to all, reconvene and figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, let's shift in a slightly different direction. Um, you know, we we all talk uh, and and focus on how important it is to have diversity in our law firms, in our teams. Um, and I'm curious, Kim, as, as certainly one of the most preeminent uh, women legal leaders in the United States, States and globally, you know, how do you see this? Where do you think uh, you are today? Where do you think the profession is? What's going to happen next over the, ne the critical five-year period we have coming up? I have all perfect answers to this, Steve. <laughs> Good, that's why I asked yeah, you. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is a huge challenge and a very compelling issue for us to focus on. And I guess I start with, I feel, you know, humbled and grateful that I am in this role. I also feel like I ought to make sure that I don't squander the opportunity. So being in a leadership role and um, having a voice in these issues, I made a high priority from the start of my tenure as chair. I was fortunate that my predecessor shared this commitment. So this has been kind of in our fabric that this is a meaningful, um, very significant issue for the legal profession. It, it's significant in every way. Um, it's significant in terms of meeting the needs of, of people who require legal services. It's significant in terms of who our clients are and what it, what it says about us and how we have the best perspectives on the work that we offer and the viewpoints that we bring. Um, and that's all before you get to, this is the right thing. This is, this, we are a diverse world and being able to navigate those cultural differences is extremely important. I don't think that either of our firms have a lot of people who doubt that. 
Um, I th think that has become ingrained. But getting from here to how do we get this to a different place? Um, I think you, we're both firms that have a big commitment to this, and yet the statistics on how many women are, are partners in law you firms. You start with 50%, uh, right, 50, and 50, and by the time you get to the partnership cutoff, it's 25, 30% if, 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 you're, if you're lucky. lucky. If and, you're doing the, this really well. Yes. Um, and, and on diverse lawyers, similar, making sure that people remain at the law firm and are able to get the kinds of opportunities that allow you to shine. This requires a huge amount of um, commitment on the part of the firm. And um, what, what we're doing, I think, is good, but there is more to be done. And, and this has been just an important theme to me. I mean, if I were to tell you my personal belief in where the secret sauce in this is, I think it's all around assignments. I think it's mm -hmm. what opportunities people are getting, who they're getting to work with, making sure that this is not simply kind of a, I really like this person, so I'm going to keep working with them, as opposed to, are we really looking at who's getting what assignments, who are they working with, what stretch opportunities are they getting, what are the ways in which they're able to distinguish themselves, and that can't be incidental. That really has to be focused on. Um, I've said to my practice group leaders on several occasions now, if I could take all of the money from every one of the kind of nice things that we do to create a sense of community, those are all really important. But if I could take all of you and spend three days on understanding every step of what it is to be an associate at a law firm and how it is that you succeed, I would take the time and make sure that everybody got, everybody has great intentions. I really believe that people are trying to get this right, but it's not turning out in the successful way that it needs to and really finding those moments in time that define whether somebody stays at the law firm, whether they progress successfully, whether they get a great opportunity, whether a client falls in love with them, that has to be a more intentional aspect to um, being in a large law firm. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely engagement with the associate and really understanding what's going on in their life at the firm and outside yeah. the firm is the is the challenge and it's very hard sometimes to get those uh, have real conversations around those things there are a lot of uh, unmentionables that people don't want to you know maybe they're not happy at a law firm maybe right. they're thinking about something else and too often we uh, discover it's on the way out the door that somebody says if only I could have done X or Y well I think it's on the firm to try to find a way to engage on those uh, you know at a much earlier time when you can act on it but uh, totally agree that it is the work assignment uh, process that's at the heart of this we've we've been working on that we've also I think one of the things I've tried to do is just try to make sure we have a lot of balance in the room where decisions get made so we have uh, uh, roughly a 13 person team that runs the firm day to day and uh, five of those people are women and uh, it and they're also ge geographically diverse so that brings its own little aspect to it but I having been in the room for a long time now it is fascinating to me to reflect back just how different the conversations are yeah. they just it just is a different uh, uh, different questions get asked uh, 
they get pursued in a different way, and um, I, I, I tend to think the decision making is better just by having you know broad diverse viewpoints. I, I totally agree. I, I'll tell you one funny moment in, in our comp meetings this year. There was some moment where um, I would say that I made a point and about 15 seconds later, someone else around the table said the exact same thing. And I paused and said, can I just try and make sure that everybody is educated on, on this? So I just said this, and then someone else said the exact same thing. They just said it in a louder, deeper voice. And one of my partners, to his credit, said, oh, this is what my daughter calls mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> and that resonated yeah. with the room. Yeah. So um, I yeah. agree that there is a lot about who's in the room, and yeah. the direction that the conversation takes is definitely different. And we We've done the same thing. I mean, we, we have um, created rotation on all of our committees and term limits so that there is new people coming into leadership positions on the firm. And I think just empirically, we are making better decisions with a wider range of viewpoints. And it feels more comfortable and more inclusive as a law firm. So at every level, I think um, you get better results. And it also sends, I think, an important message um, on these issues as to how much the firm values it. Because if you're talking a lot about it, but you're not showing it and what you do and who's running your practices and whose viewpoints are getting considered, people get that. You know, it's a smart population. They know that you're not really walking the walk. Yeah, I think that's where you get to kind of what's the culture you talk about, right. what's the culture you live. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, so. You and I uh, both have the pleasure of uh, running large institutions. And one of the things that I think we occasionally get asked, sometimes with different tones of voice, is what do you do? Sometimes or, people what say, exactly what do exactly do? do you do? <laughs> yeah, but taking it, in, right, <laughs> taking it in a more positive yeah, way, yeah. Um, I think there's just kind of an interest in knowing what is a day in the life or a week in the life of a managing partner? What, what do you consider your job? description to be? Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of the biggest transitions I had to make, and I gave up my practice, That's uh, which uh, seemed like the necessary thing because I, uh, for just the global span of it, and, and clients always have to come first, so you've got an inherent conflict there. I will say within a month, I got called by a client with a amazingly juicy assignment, <laughs> and uh, taking a pass on that was really hard. Okay. But I, 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 I try to think of it in terms of how do I have impact? And it, it has taken me some time to think through, you know, what should, how, it's not that it's hard to fill your day. You can have, you know, uh, every minute of the day scheduled with somebody who's happy to sit down and talk to you about things. But I, I have come to feel that, you know, the key parts of the job are obviously thinking about the strategy of the firm um, and constantly explaining that to our partners and to our people, um, doing things like this. The, out, out, the external voice uh, face of the firm is important, particularly in today's world, working on communication within the firm. We're, uh, we have over 6,000 employees, 
45 offices, uh, lots of different viewpoints, and uh, increasingly a very sophisticated infrastructure of non-lawyer professionals that support what we do. So uh, making sure that I understand that part of the business is really uh, critical. Um, but uh, at least half my time I spend with partners. Uh, I, I really believe that understanding what partners do, understanding what they're trying to do, what the firm can do to help them, what the firm is doing that feels obstructive to them, uh, having a relationship that allows you to um, have the conversations that need to happen when they should happen. And uh, you know, I think I have to model that. I, I, I hope that all the people that work with me uh, are, are doing the same thing all the way down uh, because a lot of those conversations are difficult and um, I find the difficult conversations are a little bit easier to manage when there is a personal relationship that's part of it. So, um, you know, I think it, it keeps changing. Uh, the uh, uh, I, We'll talk about maybe a little bit later technology and what implications that has for us. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a period when there's a lot of angst generally in the profession that it's no, none of us feels as secure as we felt in 2006 when it looked like you had you know endless growth for the rest of our careers and so managing the the kind of mood and spirit of the firm is also something you've got to pay attention to uh, it's never dull um, sometimes uh, more stimulating than I would like it to be, but uh, that's the way it has uh, um, devolved for me. How about you, Kim? Yes, so I would say a huge amount of overlap in this. Um, I, I think there are two main kind of drivers of what I focus on. One is our partners and the other is our clients. And with respect to our partners, it is about making sure, I, I like to view myself, I hope they view me as a facilitator of what it is that will make them more effective, make them better lawyers, make them better um, in, in their relationships with their clients. And that's that's a important part of this job, what you can bring to bear that helps the good ideas surface, guides partners, tells them about what it is that they should know about the firm, and gives them a sense of vision and where we're going and how they fit into that. Second piece of this is about making sure that our clients know how much we value the relationship, that we know that they have lots of very good choices, and that we want them to understand how much they mean to us and what it is that we think we have to offer them that hopefully will make them continue to return to us. And and that's that requires a lot of um, work to make sure that I am getting chances to meet with our clients, find out what we're doing well, find out what we can do better, find out what it is that I can communicate to our partners that gives us help going forward um, to guide us. And that has been um, a, a a big part of, I guess I'm in my fifth year in this role, that's been a really helpful part in setting the vision because this does all kind of start with our clients and making sure that I can report back. This isn't just what Kim Coopersmith is saying. This is what is happening in our industry with the people that are most important, which are our clients who are making decisions about us. And I said two, but I actually would say three things. One of the other things that goes to culture, which I think we're going to talk about a bit as well, um, 
I think that it really matters how everyone that works at the law firm feels. And one of the things that I started when I assumed this position was much more regular contact with all of the people in business services, speaking much more regularly with our associates and counsel about what, what is it that really matters to them? What's the firm doing well? What could we do differently? And th those all take a lot of kind of really hands-on attention. It, it's not just a town hall. It's really like sitting in someone's office and hearing what they have to say. I remember when I first um, was about to take this role and my predecessor Bruce McLean sent me to a program for for leaders and, and one of the law firm leaders spoke and said for the first six months I had this this role um, my secretary set the agenda of the law firm because every person that called and said that they wanted to speak to me she dutifully scheduled and if anybody asked me to travel somewhere I went there and at a certain point I realized that I needed to set the agenda and I couldn't simply answer everybody's inquiries and that was that stuck with me and I, I've tried hard to find that balance between being fully responsive, and I think that is a big part of what we do. You, you need to be available. You need to have your partners sense that you have the same sense of urgency they do about doing this, this well and making sure the firm is doing everything. But you also need to have some control over where you're putting your efforts because these are big organizations that yeah. are very complicated. I, 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 I really uh, agree with that, and I think finding time, building time into your schedule to actually think. Yeah. There's not enough thinking in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> I try to try to uh, provide some time. And I, yeah, uh, the client focus, I, I, I should have mentioned that because it's 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 the way I get to see clients now yeah. is going right. to talk to them about the firm. And I, I definitely feel that, uh, you know, having a client-centric philosophy and having that communicated throughout the entire firm right. is important. So, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, a part of this job is you wake up every morning and you look at the emails in your inbox that have sometimes come Sometimes in the middle of the night. Sometimes in the middle that. of the night, and sometimes there's a really ugly thing in there. Um, yeah. So talk, talk a little bit about your philosophy as it relates to, you know, crisis management, right. if that's a term one might use, because inevitably things go wrong. Things happen. Um, so that, that was an area that I think um, I would have to say on-the-job training is the only way that you can fully appreciate those moments in time. And and I um, was fortunate that there weren't that many on-the-job training yeah. opportunities. Um, but I, I think it is, it's important. These are large global organizations and there is news that breaks, there are issues that happen, and you need to be prepared. So we, we have uh, really tried to structure a core team of people that will be involved in every one of these instances, make sure that we have a team of professionals who can assist when it requires something beyond um, our marketing team, our, our general counsel function, myself. And, and I think we have created a good infrastructure around responding to issues. And what you need to do is you need some good minds to get together. Um, I do think it requires a small focus group. These are not moments that you can get consensus of a thousand lawyers or, or uh, necessarily everyone whose views you would like on a topic, but you, you go at it. Um, we're focused on transparency, always about integrity and the reputation of the firm, and how do we best make sure that the message we're communicating in difficult circumstances, in challenging circumstances, um, 
conveys the firm's view on this, which is always about doing the right thing. Uh, that, that's what it comes down to. And, and you need to, sometimes doing the right thing is, is um, not having a comment. Sometimes doing the right thing is providing information so that there's a better context. Internal communications are, are important because your, your business services, your lawyers are all looking to know, well, what is the answer to this? Or what is the firm's reaction to this? And so finding that way to make sure that all of the constituencies internally, your clients, the, the world at large you're addressing, and those messages aren't necessarily always identical, um, and doing it in a very fast, real-time, okay, here's what's happening, and here's the results of this, and now we need to course correct or, or add to our strategy. Um, it keeps the adrenaline up, that's mm. what I would say. And you? Yeah, we actually do some tabletop exercises yeah. from time to time just to kind of get our brains yep. uh, thinking about, you know, what if this crazy thing happened? Uh, obviously, these crises come in all shapes and sizes, um, and there are some that are tragedies. We had one of our associates in Paris was murdered in the Paris uh, terrorist attacks in November of 2000, I guess it was 2014. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, there the need that the firm had was for people to rally together. around and show that we were all part of uh, one community. Um, but there are other things that happen where, you know, people do stupid things. Unfortunately, sometimes you're partners and you can't believe some of the things people we do. We know that. And I think that uh, the, 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 the word you use of transparency, I think, is one of those things that you just have to keep coming back to. And um, it's what people expect of you. It's, it's, it's what your partners expect uh, to have a sense of comfort that they actually know. They don't need to know all the details, but they need to know that the people are taking this seriously right. and doing the right thing, and so, you know, it's uh, it, it's it, it, no. You, there's never a formula for dealing with a crisis, but I do think uh, emphasis on you know where are we coming from, what do we stand for. Um, things happen, but we're going to deal with it in a way that you're going to be comfortable, and then communicating back kind of where things. Right, and I mean, I I think. We both try and be on offense so yeah. that you're, and I don't, I never want my partners to be reading about something and saying to me, what do you think of this? So we do try pretty hard to anticipate, okay, how is this going to be received and what can we do to make sure that people are educated about this ahead of time? And again, I, I go back to uh, my predecessor who years ago with, with some moment in time that was kind of an introduction, I don't remember the issue, but I remember saying, you know, Bruce, what should we do? And he said, said, Kim, the truth will set you free. Yeah. And uh, I think that's on town hall right across from our <laughs> offices. And every time I look at yeah. it, I think of him. And I think that has been really good advice on uh, many, many occasions. And, and look, the world is complicated. I, I think everyone in, in our law firms understands that there are going to be moments that require judgment calls and that things didn't go the way you want them to, or you, you find yourself in, in a crisis. And people accept that. What they're looking at is how you handle it and, and making sure that they feel confident in the people who are saying, here is the plan and how, here's how we get from A to B. That's really you know, what we can control. We can't right. control stupidity, but we can control the message that follows it.
Mm. So why don't we move to a, a, a slightly more upbeat discussion <laughs> from crisis management and, and talk a bit about uh, the world we find ourselves in in terms of yeah. client service and business. And I think everyone who would be interested in watching this would understand what the words flat demand means. And it's probably ingrained in all of our, our brains at this point after um, a number of years of, of reassessing what the legal landscape looks like. And in a world of flat demand where you are really, um, where we're all struggling to make sure that our clients turn to us, um, we're dealing with all kinds of other aspects of how legal services are provided, whether by accounting firms, artificial intelligence, a variety of, of in-house growth in legal departments. There's plenty of ways in which the, the pie of legal work is, is being carefully scrutinized. So what is your magic formula for yeah. making sure that your work continues to grow? Well, I'll take notes. Yeah, no, I think that uh, the first, uh, first principle is face reality. And that's one of my jobs, I think, as the leader of Hogan Lovells, is to make certain that all of our people understand this is our reality. You know, we're not going to sit and wait for the market to be the way it was in 2006. I don't think that will ever exist again. Uh, the things that are happening in the market that are changing that reality are not just the oversupply of lawyers, it's the way our clients have begun to rethink where the value is and, and what they get from their outside legal advisors. They've brought huge resources in-house um, in a way that uh, makes those relationships totally different than they were you know, even 10 years ago when you might have been dealing with a relatively small uh, in-house legal group. They're sophisticated, they understand the law business, and they understand you know, what's good about it and what's not so good about it. So you know, I think, first of all, it's just trying to make sure people understand that is our new reality and it, there's nothing that I see in the marketplace that's likely to change that. I, I think it's also trying to uh, make sure people understand that just doing the things we've always done is not a formula for success. We all, I, I, I think of lawyers as you know, great artisans in a way. They're people that learn to craft. They love the craft. Uh, they love writing that complicated trust document or arguing that motion. Or, or They love the craft. Um, and you can get blinded by that because the people that are buying what you're, they're not, they don't love the craft. They see you as somebody that can help them solve a problem. And so getting our people to have a shift of mindset, much more focused on what does the client want? What does the client need here? How are we going to align ourselves with the client? And we're trying to do that in a couple of different ways. We've uh, uh, developed much more of a, sector-focused approach to certain uh, industries and try to bring together people collaboratively across different practice areas, different approaches for how we manage our, our client uh, relationships, uh, trying to make sure people understand uh, that the client experience matters hugely. And as I always say, to them, believe it or not, there are actually thousands of great lawyers in the world. So the bell curve of technical legal 
competence is narrower than any of us would like to believe. And the idea that we're going to be wildly successful just by saying, I'm smarter than the other lawyer, better than the other lawyer. The bell curve of client experience and client service is very wide. So just trying to make sure that we're really focused on what's the client experience here? Are we completely oriented around getting them the right, best solution? If it can be a five-page document instead of a beautiful 25-page document, that's actually success, even though the 25-page document is a lot more fun as a craftsperson. So it's just trying to work with people to understand the different dimensions of the market. I think collaboration within the firm is more important today than ever before, in part because what the clients are asking us to do is a little bit different. It's different. It's the more exotic. It's not the routine thing. It's something where they're only coming to us because they don't have the internal resources or or the bandwidth to deal with that problem. So they need to have a law firm that's going to bring all of its best resources to bear on their issues. So um, I'm not sure that that is a formula, but um, we we do seem to be uh, seeing uh, you know steady increase in demand for what we do, and um, I'm going to go with that. that that's, so we <laughs> have you? we, we yeah. have our partner retreat coming up next week, and. <laughs> As you know, that is always a time for kind of focus on what is the message that you think is most important. And I think there is not a a managing partner that is not highlighting in a flat demand environment how is our firm a firm that continues to grow. So definitely the theme, and I, I agree with all that you said. I think the two things that I would add from my 48th version of um, of my PowerPoint <laughs> for next week is um, collaboration was the theme last year. I always go back and make sure that my message has some continuity from year to year. And one of the things that I realized for this year is, in addition to the theme of collaboration amongst the lawyers and, and business services people in our firm, is the theme of collaboration with our clients. So what is it that we can do that helps them to view us as a partner? in knowing their business, in finding out how what would make them most successful in their own legal department or in who they report to. And, and having our partners think a bit differently beyond just the good part of teams that are focused on meeting either an industry challenge or are focused on making sure that our clients are serviced in a, in a coordinated way. Definite focus of our firm. I am trying to broaden people's definition of the word collaboration to make sure that they also understand that our clients are looking for that same kind of you know, thought leadership in, in how they can be viewed successfully, what we can do that will enable us to show our value. And the second message is a pretty consistent one, which is you need to differentiate. So we need to make sure that there's a reason that our clients are thinking about us and saying, we have a trade issue, we have a policy issue, we have a white collar issue, we have an energy issue, funds, tax, financial restructuring, I mean, you name it, that people are thinking those people at Aiken Gump are really good at this. And how we communicate that and have that expertise and make sure that we're training people so that they continue to distinguish themselves in in having that expertise, understanding what the client's industry is, is doing and how they can create greater value. That's part of uh, our our 
attempt to make sure that we are successful. I mean, it's funny that the, the one of the struggles is we, we too are coming off of a, a strong year, and so you ha you find yourself with kind of a contradictory message of I want to you know make sure you all stay the course, and I want you to totally embrace change yeah. and making sure that um, that doesn't sound like you've lost your mind is is I think important because it really is. There's a lot that is I think fundamentally strong at our law firm and and people have done very well in in making sure that our vision continues to to move forward on strategy on point but the world is changing and and relying on I'm a really good lawyer I I am the bearer of unfortunate news that is not enough just as you said gets you into the game that's yep. about it so, Kim, you mentioned uh, Bruce McLean, um, who was your predecessor at Aiken Gump, and uh, I know Bruce, and uh, he's uh, he's a, a, one of the uh, I would say iconic was one of in, yeah. in his day one of the iconic leaders of uh, of, of a U.S. law firm, uh, a real visionary. So, what was it like uh, stepping into that? He, Bruce had done it a long time, twenty years. Twenty years. So, right. how did you how did you manage that? transition. Right. Well, I start by saying you have a similar uh, a similar spot that you're in because Warren uh, Gorell was also a legend. And I, I think if the question is what happens to people after their icons in this field, I think I can tell you that the two of them are biking presently in the French <laughs> right, yeah. Alps. They're so, in good shape. Yeah. So, um, that, that's the path. Um, it was very challenging. Now, I was very fortunate because Bruce, for probably five plus years, spent a lot of time um, mentoring and developing my knowledge of the firm, my leadership skills, giving me visibility. So it was um, a more gradual transition than I think I even appreciated at the time. I thought that Bruce was just nicely asking me to report to the partners on a particular topic on, on a firm-wide video conference. Now I realize that there was a method to many of these steps. He, you know, he, we've only had four chairs of our law firm in, in the whole history of the firm, the first being Bob Strauss and the second being Alan Feld. So Bruce is, for, for many people, that is their experience in what it was to be at Aiken Gump, including for me. So he, he was the chair when I started at the firm in 1994, and that is all I ever knew. And he ran a pretty fantastic law firm. So there was um, a lot that made me hesitant to do anything differently because he was really good, and, and the firm was highly supportive of him, and he moved us pretty radically from where we started to where we were in 2013 when I when I took on this role. So you, you're trying to kind of find the balance when you follow an icon of let's not you know do anything that's going to upset what is in very good shape, but what is it that I can bring that would be um, something that would add value to the firm, a different perspective, a different way of looking at things. And I think it's been a nice um, a nice way of growing. Oh, many of the things that Bruce did further and getting them even even um, to take more more root and and bloom into some great aspects of the firm and then find um, some ways in which we moved in a different direction I, mean, I think the biggest
biggest change in our firm from um, the, the, the end of when Bruce was in this role and when I took over was what we did in London, London Hong Kong and Frankfurt. And bringing in um, the group that we did from Bingham was a pretty transformational change for us. Um, that gave me um, so, some opportunities for a, a, a somewhat different focus than Bruce. I mean, we've both been very focused on global expansion. Um, you guys have done that, I think, unbelievably well. And that was a, a nice way in which uh, the direction of the firm continued um, with the roots that, that were in place, but we were able to, to move to um, even greater heights. And you? Well, it was a little bit different in the sense that um, I wasn't just succeeding Warren. So when I took over, we moved from having two co-CEOs, uh, Warren in uh, Washington and David Harris in London, to a single. And so in a way, it was easier in the sense that nobody had, had the job before. And I pretty much took it on on that basis, that, that the assignment was to, to, to take on a new role and to decide how that role would, would play out. Um, you know, one of the results of that is I have made the decision to spend about three months a year in London. Uh, so I'm in the office there. It is our single biggest office in, in the world. Um, so wanted to know the lawyers there, meet them, and be clear that I was going to be the CEO for everybody, not just for Washington, D.C. or New York. Um, and, and so that, that, was, uh, that was an advantage. And, uh, I think you just have got to find your voice, uh, you know, who you are. And when you uh, come along a very successful, uh, you know, you're replacing somebody who's very successful, like Bruce or Warren, I think you can either be paralyzed by that or you just simply say, I've been put in this role, uh, and I'm just going to do it the best I can until they tell me to stop. And so that's been the mindset I've brought to it. Um, you know, I, I, I came to this at a different point in my career than probably is typical. And that in itself has been somewhat liberating. I'm not going to do this for 10 years. I'm not going to do this for 20 years like uh, Warren or Bruce did. Um, I've got a really, um, in my mind, an opportunity here over a relatively short span to finish the integration of our combination and to really uh, get us ready for the next uh, 10 years beyond that. And, and that, in a way, means a lot more focus and a lot more sense of urgency uh, that has been useful because I think when you do a job like this, a sense of urgency is probably a necessary attribute. Right, and I, I think just in terms of defining and finding your voice. I, I think one of the things I said to Bruce when he checks in periodically or I give him a call when I have an issue that I could use his wisdom. And so he says, you know, how's it going? And I said, you know, the biggest change is that for the last five plus years, whenever either one of us had something that, you know, we were kind of thinking through, you could call the other person and, and bounce off what your thoughts were and always know that you were going to get a good response. And now I just talked to myself and stare out the window and say, what would Bruce say and have the conversation uh -huh. with myself? So uh, it, it was a, a great kind of 
path to get to where um, you are that you're now leading and, and deciding on what, what the messages are and what you want to focus on. But it is a, you know, it's a daunting challenge coming after someone that's so defined both of our firms. That's true. Uh, Warren has stayed on as uh, CEO Emeritus. Um, he initially focused on his practice and now has, has completely transitioned out of that. And uh, that has been a huge help, although he's never called me once. I mean, his <laughs> point of view is, I'm here. So right. you call me if there's something you'd like me to do. Yeah. Um, I'm here, ready to do it. But but has never once sort of called me up and said, why did you do that? Same, um, same And here. that, I think, is... Uh, Sign of a good leader. Yeah, exactly. That they, they're prepared to let you kind of uh, right. succeed or fail right. on, your, on your own. But... Uh, much to be learned. Yes, indeed. So let's talk a little bit about, I think, a topic that both of us care a lot about at our firms, which is the culture. Um, I think culture means a lot of different things. It comes up in, in almost every aspect of the firm. But why don't you talk a little bit about how you define culture and, and what that means at Hogan? Sure. Well, I, I, I do think it is one of those things, like everybody talks about it, but right. what, is it, what does it really mean? I, I think it, for me, it's kind of what are the what are the norms of behavior that you expect of one another and that you're prepared to call somebody out on if they disregard um, and for us it's it's been uh, an interesting experience as we've brought together people from so many different cultures on a relatively even footing mm -hmm. so not a US firm that is doing something but a global firm that has to accommodate those different people uh, di different outlooks and and uh, so I think it begins with, uh, you know, what are your shared ambitions? Uh, how do you how are you going to talk about your ambitions? How are you going to take care of each other? I mean, I think for us, a critical aspect of our culture is actually supporting one another. And uh, uh, so one of the things that allowed us to be successful bringing together this diverse group was the, the, the various antecedents all had a culture of respect mm -hmm. uh, of, of the way you communicated with one another and out of that grew a pretty good facility at building relationships mm -hmm. so I think you know, at the end of the day relationships are what allow a professional services firm to succeed or if the relationships are not fostered it will fail um, so there are those aspects I, I think um, one of the things that that I um, you know struggle with at times and what we sort of are working on is uh, making sure our culture has the right commitment to feedback. Um, yeah, I, f I find it fascinating about lawyers. They they uh, are very adversarial often in their professional dealings, but if you say, go down the hall and have a, a conversation with a partner it's that funny. did not do what you expected them to do or an associate, and they do not want to do that. And so really trying to develop a culture where feedback gets given you know, at the, at the right time in the right way, and that can allow you to actually get better. And that's something we talk a lot about is 
having a culture of straight talk and feedback that allows us to not avoid problems. Because sometimes your culture of, of collegiality can uh, allow you to duck right. uh, the, the, the issues that need to be addressed. And I do think that's one of the things that, you know, the partnership as a whole they're looking at for management and saying, are you going to take on the things that that are hard? Uh, you say that you're about uh, collaboration, but do you reward the people who don't collaborate? And, you know, there are all these ways that I think a culture both gets talked about and lived. The closer those are, the, yeah. the better you're going to be. Uh, you know, in in uh, as a as an organization, but I I do find this is a time where you know, culture is more important than ever because there's so many forces, you know, pushing at it, whether it's technology or the market or everything else, um, and uh, and I I find it pretty fascinating. I, I mean, I, th I think we're like as, as business organizations, uh, a, a collection of you know, 2,500 lawyers is pretty fascinating organism. Yeah, plus another uh, couple thousand other people that are there to help the lawyers do what they do. Right, and it, I, I heard someone speak and say, culture should never be its own point because culture should actually be embedded in every single thing that you're doing as a law firm. And I, I it did resonate with me that culture isn't per se its own goal. Culture is in who you decide to bring in laterally, how your associates sure. feel about coming to work every day. How do all of the people that support all of the lawyers and make this whole engine run and make us look good with our clients, how do they feel about um, their experience at work. How do our clients view us, right? Because culture, they see culture in how the lawyers at at all of the different law firms who do work for them, how they interact with each other and how they interact with clients, all, you know, those all are aspects of our own culture. And I guess when I've tried to kind of distill this into all of the places that, that I see culture mattering, I've tried to come up with the best balance of, this is a high performing law firm. It's a firm that I think people are deeply committed to the firm's um, goals and to making sure sure that our clients view us as being the place to turn. But it's also a firm where the other part of my message is, we are investing for the next generation of lawyers so that we leave the firm a better firm than we found it when we started our legal careers here. And and I, that has resonated. That That is a concept that our partners have said, I like that goal. I like the idea that we're, we're all driving for success, but we're also making sure that the glue is there, the connections are there, the sense of common purpose is there, the desire to have a firm that is even stronger and doing even more wonderful things. When when I, I finish doing that, it's, it's a pretty satisfying and compelling way to describe what, what kind of a culture we want to have. So it's been, um, I think it's been a, a good message for us to, to keep the balance. You, you, want, you want everyone that works there to feel intensely committed, but it, it is a community. And, and that community and that sense of, of how we treat each other and respect 
I think that matters a lot to how a firm um, fares in, in all aspects, in talent and in relationships um, with our clients. So. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, it, that's the kind of the secret is how do you get the balance yeah. right between ambition, which is critically important, and and the supportiveness. And then the other thing that we see today is the need to be innovative, to be creative, right. and building that in your culture is also, boy, what a challenge to make right. lawyers for to challenge lawyers to be. Innovative, yeah. We are, not something I heard for the first 25 years of practicing law, but it's uh, it's it's definitely uh, it's, it's it's definitely part of our reality. And and actually, uh, another part of our reality is that we're now bringing into our firms this next generation, the the much abused millennial generation. I, I think much abused. I mean, I actually think it's not that I don't question that they have different outlooks, uh, but I think a lot of it tends to be exaggerated. Uh, I see people, young people that are very committed to being great lawyers. Um, they may not necessarily have their career mapped out with the view that my definition of success is to become a partner in a, in a law firm, but, but I find them very committed to uh, to you know, being uh, excellent lawyers, but what what's your experience, Kim? And, I, and now I've discovered you're the mother of a millennial <laughs> of a, of a uh, lawyer. Associate yeah. of Paul Weiss, so I have an yeah. excellent vantage point. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I I'm sure you do a lot of reading as well, and I've tried to. Um, this is sounding very unmillennial, but kind of read up on um, all of the issues in in terms of how people feel about where they work, and I think actually the most compelling piece I read was um, in the Harvard Business Review, and it's a something that essentially was arguing that there isn't really a millennial issue. There is a how do people feel about where they work? And, and the common themes of do I like the environment? Do I feel like I can do good work and add value? Do I feel like I am recognized for what I do? Do I feel like I'm being treated with respect? I mean, it's hard to imagine that anybody at any stage of their career doesn't think that those same questions are important. And, and th there was a fun quote in the article that said something essentially like, it's not that millennials are narcissists, it's just that everyone who's young is a narcissist, and when you get old, you get over yourself. And I, I think that that kind of theory of there's one generation that's acting totally different, I, I, I guess I don't really buy that. And certainly the associates that I see at, at our firm, they may work differently, they may be more interested in doing more work at home, um, or, or going back to, to to do work after they go out to dinner or balancing how they get it done. But, you know, it's it's a highly committed, intense group. And I would certainly say that, uh, you know, my daughter is no exception. I, I She hates when I tell this story, but when she was about 14 years old, back in the old days, I was actually marking up a brief, like literally with a red flare pen marking up a brief. And she came out of her room and walked to the kitchen past me at the dining room table. And she said, I can tell you one thing. I'll never be doing that. <laughs> and now that she's a fifth-year associate in litigation, sitting at her computer marking up she briefs. She just meant she wasn't going to use a red pen. <laughs> I, I guess that's it. Um, I, I see all kinds of highly committed people. And, and I think being responsive to some common themes about a sense of purpose and a sense of flexibility about how the work gets done, all good, but it's good for everybody. 
And how, how, how do you all uh, feel about agile working or uh, flexibility yes. in working? Do you have a, a, an approach on that? So we, we are you know, in the process of kind of trying to define what is happening under like just the way that the world works and, and happening at all levels. So this is, this is not just a, this is how associates work. This is a, people are mobile. People do work in different environments. And so our focus has been in how do we make sure that this is as seamless as possible wherever you are. If you're working at home, if you're traveling, if you're at a client, if you're um, in a variety of countries where we don't have 45 offices, but we cover multiple continents and making sure that everybody can just maximize their, their contribution to the firm. And you know, the, the statistics on how much time people are actually in their offices is pretty startling. So um, I know there's kind of some generational issue to, well, when I was trained, I sat in an office and listened to a partner on the phone, you know, for the whole day. And that's how I learned, you know, those that that's just not going to actually be a viable method going forward. And, you know, email has so radically changed right. how people communicate. I, I think, you know, this is coming to a theater near you everywhere. You, you, this world is not going to work the way that it did when you and I were younger. And you? Yeah, we actually have a, a agile working policy that is gives everybody the right to ask for agile working. If you're a receptionist, you're probably not going to be probably able to do it. Work. But but we have we've actually tried to make it available uh, across the entire firm. It's uh, a lot of uptake in the U.S. A lot of uptake in the United Kingdom, varying in other countries. But um, I I absolutely agree with you that it's. It's the uh, it's the way people uh, approach work today. I was at a meeting of uh, some managing partners uh, last fall, and this topic came up, and there was a lot of feeling like this cannot work. Uh, you've got to be in the office to learn these things, and and I I definitely accept there is a hive yeah. effect. But what I contributed to that conversation is uh, a really great piece of advice I once got, which is when something is inevitable, learn to love it. And <laughs> this, it's like this feels is, this is coming. So if it hasn't already yeah, so, burst itself in yeah. your firm, this is coming. But I, I think it actually, to go back to some of the, an earlier uh, topic, I mean, I think by providing more flexibility to people about where they work, when they work, how they work, it does give more uh, flexibility in a way that I think uh, can help people uh, stay with the firm longer than they might otherwise. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's in our interest to be uh, to be making that a, a, a valid choice, not just an option, but you know, here, here and and we're very clear that you know you can become a partner on a part-time basis. You can become an equity partner on a part-time basis. It's not, you know, this is not kind of a single pathway and um, lots of work to be done there. But I mean, I, I have a distinct advantage on that front because I did work four days a week and functioned as a partner at the firm and then returned full-time. I mean, that was one of my first um, assignments from Bruce when I had been at the firm for a pretty short amount of time. I came over with a group and I was working four days a week when I joined the firm and over the next year or two transitioned back to full-time and Bruce, you know, essentially said, 
young lady, you seem to have made this work. Could you come and talk to the management committee, which I think at the time was all male, and going in there and saying, you can work four days a week and actually still add value and contribute. Um, I I remember some startled looks in the room, but I I did try to say it hasn't really turned out that bad. I think you would would agree. And now we've had, I think, 150 people who have worked on a reduced workload basis. Um, I chaired the, the firm's partnership committee and making sure that they knew my story as we started to see more and more women come up for a partner who had spent um, some portion of their career working on a reduced basis or were still working on some kind of flexible arrangement when they were up for partner. You know, it's a pretty good answer to say, like, here's the deal. It didn't turn out that you made a terrible mistake when um, I, I ended up staying with the firm and coming back full time and feeling very comfortable in supporting other people who were doing that. And that that was a helpful way to use the voice. We have a whole wave of partners now who are hitting the prime of their career who have gone through exactly that that experience. And it's powerful. I yeah. mean, there's not one of those people that I would trade. And you know that's good way of putting that's it. the that's, that's the cost if you can't find a way to make this work. Um, good. So technology. Ah, yeah. What's uh, there's about <laughs> ten questions I could ask on technology. Right. Uh, I think we've talked about some of them in terms of is it replacing lawyers and and kind of the fear factor of technology, but also a lot of opportunities that technology is offering and ways to capitalize on it in terms of how we interact with our clients. So what's what's some of the good things you have to say? Well, I think yeah, one of one of, of the jobs I felt I had was to try to understand it as best I could, not being a technology guru myself or an engineer, but I, I did spend a fair amount of time in my first year just trying to understand what was happening, what was going on. I'm pretty optimistic that that just as email made us more uh, effective and word processing, had, well, I, that's probably debatable. <laughs> but uh, as uh, uh, LexisNexis and those types of tools, I, I think uh, for the most part, technology is going to evolve in a way that it will allow us to uh, focus on the parts of the work where we can truly bring value. And you're a litigator, so we. We've all seen the revolution in uh, document right. processing that's happened over the last, uh, you know, five to fifteen years, and that's all artificial intelligence, really. I mean, and and I, and I, you see how that's evolved. You see that it's got potential in the area of diligence. I think the potential in uh, in terms of document creation, document automation, are all going to be efficiency tools, and so I think that um, we're going to be in a period where a lot of different products are going to be available. Our philosophy is kind of fast follower. We're not out there trying to write software code ourselves. We're just trying to understand what the products are, test them, uh, see what the next generation is. What I don't think is going to happen, and maybe this is just because I'm not a, a creative enough thinker, 
I just don't see uh, this vision, this to me dystopian vision of a world where robots are arguing cases before a robotic Supreme Court. I, I, and there's a there's a great article I read uh, that was called something like uh, "Will lawyer, Robots Practice Law?" But the reality is, the value we bring is d d dealing with human, the human aspects of these situations. It's the the witness, the client, the counterparty, the the judge, the regulator, and I think if you actually get down to it, a huge amount of what we do as lawyers is dealing with other human beings or trying to understand how we can take the, the technical processing piece and apply it. People don't come to Hogan Lovells or Aiken to say, what's the law of X? Of course, they expect you to know that, but it's usually, I've got this huge problem, or here's what we're trying to do. Can you help us solve that problem? So I, I, I think I'm optimistic that technology, when all the dust settles, it will change. Yeah. Uh, whether we need the same configuration of people, whether we will have uh, the same office uh, structures in 10 years, who knows? But I'm somewhat optimistic there will still be lawyers and law firms uh, I, I, working I for clients. I share that view. I mean, I think, I think adapting, it's going to continue to be part of the ethos of large law firms and things are going to change. We're not going to sit here and anticipate every way in which that's going to happen. Uh, my, my job is to cultivate in the firm a receptivity to change, a receptivity to this is actually, this is where the world is going. This is what our clients are expecting. So that's actually a good thing. This work is going to be done differently. We're going to focus on this. We're going to be kind of ahead in making sure that we express to our clients our willingness to do this differently and understand the different components of how the work will get done. And and I think that's going to continue to evolve, but you will still need people with judgment. And the situations that our clients face are very complex. They generally have many pieces to them geographically, issue-wise, and having people that can put those pieces together, I think, is, I think that job is, is safe change and who, who the people are, who we want to attract, what what are the talents of people who are going to join law firms. I, I, all of that, I, I think, is, is it will be different in 10 years and certainly different in 20 years. But I think there will be some fundamentals that remain for what we do in terms of um, providing legal services and judgment and, and value. Well, to your point about collaborating with clients, I do see technology yeah. as an area where there's going to be a lot of collaboration yeah. with clients. I, it's something that comes up as a regular point of, of conversation. And, and one of the interesting things is I think our clients are, are struggling with some of these issues as yeah. much as we are. I sometimes assume, well, the clients have got all this technical <laughs> but they like asking a lot of the same questions that we found uh, in, a, in a couple instances. The opportunity to just kind of let's think this through together. We both would like to see if we can yeah. use this tool to create some efficiencies. Let's let's figure it out. And I will. I, I expect clients are going to be insisting on kind of a higher right. level of collaboration on technology issues with their preferred firms. Right, and I mean, I think cyber is already taking us. Um, whether yeah. it's a collaboration in terms of solutions or whether it's a collaboration in terms of expectations and firms having to recognize that you are going to have to do things differently. Um, anything that, that you care to share on, on the cyber front? Well, um, you know, I think I, 
we got, from a practice point of view, we got in, interested in it early, privacy and cyber both. Um, I think having people that were focused on it, got the firm focused on it in a very technical way, um, probably a little bit before others, and I think the reality is none of us are safe. Uh, all that we can do is just keep building the wall every day and hoping that we'll be able to plug the gaps that inevitably exist in any system. I, the clients have gotten, rightfully so, incredibly sophisticated and their expectations are rising. So for us as a firm, it is a matter of making sure we're making the investment, uh, we're getting the ASO certifications, and uh, insisting that our partners relinquish a little bit of their autonomy in the name of, of better security. And it's, uh, it's uh, I've been fascinated by some of the arguments I've had with individual partners who want to use an individual tool because it makes their life easier. And then you say, but but you can't do that. I mean, uh, it's, it exposes us in a way. And uh, grudgingly, well, I guess I will accept that because, you know, autonomy is, some people <laughs> like that. But when it comes to cybersecurity, autonomy is not an option. As far and as and I think that yeah. if you were to kind of rewind the tape to five years ago, I think our partners were more kind of whatever you guys want to do, but I have my way of doing work. Right. I think fast forwarding to the present, I think people understand we live in a different world. And while um, it may have a little bit of a grudging aspect to it, I, I think our lawyers and, and our business services people understand we're not trying to make life less no, convenient. Think- we, we, we need to make life as secure as we can. And that has, I think, been a positive in terms of um, recognizing that that this is a common goal that, that we all have to recognize it's going to have some effect in us, but for a good end. There are too many examples today. Yeah. Yeah. that allow people to see that when this goes wrong, it goes spectacularly not, right. wrong. So we right. need to pay attention to it. Right. So, so Kim, you're on a plane, you're flying over the world, uh, you know, uh, never a dull moment. How do you maintain your both uh, sanity and sense of perspective? It's what are your assuming secrets? Assuming a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you seem right. sane. <laughs> Um, I guess a couple of things. One in the like uh, category of um, making sure that I am healthy as much as you possibly can be. I am a very committed exercise person. So um, mm. if, if I was in that Times article on what's in your bag, there is always clothes to work out. So I, I started running in 12th grade when I thought if I don't start exercising now, it's all gonna go downhill. And I've stuck with it. Um, ran the marathon once, mm. once and done. But I, I exercise, I would say, 90% of the time when I'm traveling. So pretty religious five day a week regimen. And I think that is part of how I stay sane. Um, I have two wonderful children, one getting her master's in social work and one at Paul Weiss. And mostly they help me to stay sane Um, and making sure that you're kind of focused on your family. I married my high school sweetheart, so we've known each other for 300 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. staying grounded and having your husband who knew you in fifth grade say, really, you're not all that impressive, I think helps to stay grounded. And um, your kids keep you in check as well. And, uh, And I guess my one hobby. If I wasn't a lawyer, I would have gone to culinary school. So spend a fair amount of time decompressing by cooking and I'm not bad at it. 
My kids, we used to eat dinner at nine o'clock when they were younger, but the food was very good. It was worth waiting for. And That's you? It's just Spanish style. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 do, I do echo the physical fitness piece. I, I uh, was once, uh, at one time, riding bicycles with Bruce and Warren, but oh, uh, quite no a more. bit, but I can't keep up with them. Uh, but I have, I, I do try to get out of my bicycle whenever I can. I have a, have a bicycle in London. I just last week did a bike trip in the Netherlands and, and uh, Belgium. And uh, it's something my wife and I do oh, together. Nice. And um, yeah, she's not my high school sweetheart, but we've been <laughs> married 42 years. So there definitely is an element, up on you. Yeah, definitely an element of, of getting slapped around at home <laughs> that is, that is uh, helpful. Um, you know, I, the travel I enjoy, I will say. I mean, people talk about, you know, how awful it is. And you know, I don't enjoy being in, uh, at an airport or on an airline, but I, I do find the opportunity to to engage the world. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of, uh, of Cincinnati called Finneytown. And in Finneytown, Ohio, in the 1960s, the idea that I would be doing this as a, an adult and seeing all these places uh, would have been beyond my imagining. So I feel like I've been enormously uh, blessed. I feel that that, you know, having the trust of your partners to take on the responsibilities. It's, it's, it is kind of uh, uh, an awesome responsibility at times. But, um, you know, I, I, I love the challenge of it. And I do feel that um, it's one of the things that keeps you kind of energized and alive is getting up every morning with a sense of uh, purpose and a sense of challenge. Um, so the, the, the travel is, uh, is not always wonderful, but I, it's just part of the job. And as we were talking about how important it is that people can connect to you. I'm a bit of an introvert as a person, but uh, but that doesn't work in this job. So, you know, the other thing I find challenging sometimes is like, I'll spend a whole day with people all day long, and then I get back to my hotel room and I just can read a book. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I do, I do, uh, I do, as I say, feel enormously uh, blessed to, to have the opportunities that I have and to be doing the job I have. And it sounds I like you're- I totally feel that way. I mean, I, I wish that I had kept some kind of journal because some of the greatest thrills I've had is at night looking out on Red Square or being in Hong Kong and looking out at the harbor and saying I too grew up in the suburbs and my grandfather was a window washer. I mean, no one in my family of that generation would believe the places I've been or the experiences that I've had. And I feel a similar sense of gratitude um, that the firm has put its trust in me. And I've, I've tried to do the very best I can for the firm. I love the firm and I think that comes across, but I also, I love what the firm has given to me in terms of opportunities and experiences that in my wildest dreams I could never have imagined. That's all for this episode. The episode was brought to you again by DMX. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. 
follow Big Law Business on Twitter at Big Law Biz. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. <laughs>